This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. busy time of the semester, uh, but thank you uh, for being here. I'm Ian Condry. Uh, I organize the Cool Japan Research Project, which is a joint production between MIT and Harvard, uh, brought to you by the MIT Japan program, the Reichar Institute for Japanese Studies at Harvard, uh, and also the MIT Department of Foreign Languages and Literatures, where I am a professor. Uh, please come on in. There's seats still in the front here, and feel free to fill them in. Um, I just want to say a couple brief words about uh, Cool Japan and what the research project is about. Uh, and then I also I'll introduce our speaker today, Jennifer Robertson, who will be talking uh, uh, about gendering robots, post-human sexism in Japan. It's a paper I've been looking forward to uh, for quite a while. Um, uh, to begin with, uh, I would like to uh, say a couple words about Cool Japan. It's a research project now in its fourth year. Uh, which aims to bring together scholars of Japan from a number of disciplines interested in media, popular culture, uh, technology, and issues of globalization. Uh, although cool Japan has become a key word uh, for the government, uh, for the businesses, for popular culture industries in Japan, as a way to promote things like anime, uh, manga, and video games, uh, with the Cool Japan Research Project, we're more interested in uh, not celebrating Cool Japan or trying to find out what makes cool things cool, uh, so much as trying to understand uh, the cultural connections, uh, the dangerous distortions, and the critical potential uh, of issues related to popular culture. Uh, and so uh, robots and Japan uh, as an image and then also as reality is certainly one of the things uh, we're very interested in. We have uh, speakers uh, throughout the year uh, and we will also have a speaker coming up in a couple weeks for a lunchtime seminar on March 17th, uh, <coughs> a Tuesday, March 17th, a professor from Wako University uh, will be coming and talking about uncool Japan. Uh, and basically the way geekdom is its own kind of political protest. Uh, and we'll be exploring ideas of political protest uh, from Ueno, uh, Professor Toshia Ueno, who's a uh, famous uh, cultural studies scholar in Japan. Uh, so that will go on the MITCoolJapan.com website, uh, and I encourage you to check that out, MITCoolJapan, one word, dot com, uh, and you can find out information about that and other upcoming events. Um, I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to ask you to turn off your cell phones, uh, if you'd be so kind. Um, and I would also ask, I know this is hard, uh, but if you can refrain from laptops, it, it's helpful to us. It's very distracting for the speakers. Uh, I realize some people have to check email and do things and take notes. Uh, but if you don't mind, it would be uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, we can't stop you, and you are grown up, so uh, there's that too. Uh, but please consider uh, closing your laptops down. Uh, if you would, and be here for a couple hours, and we'll join in the discussion, and it, it really helps the atmosphere of the whole room. Okay, I want to throw that out there. I mean, allow me to uh, introduce Jennifer Robertson. Uh, actually, let me say the plan for today. Uh, Jennifer will speak uh, for about uh, 50 minutes, and, uh, and then we'll open it up to discussion. We should have a good hour for discussion. The idea is to run from 5 uh, to 7 p.m. Uh, so we'll be here. We'll have uh, lots of time for discussion and questions, and I'm sure a number of 
uh, things will come up, and I encourage you to think of your uh, questions as the talk goes on. Uh, professor Jennifer Robertson is a professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, she's also a professor of women's studies and a faculty associate in anthropology at history program. She's former director of the Center for Japanese Studies and an associate in the Department of History of Art, Science, Society, and Technology program, uh, as well as at the Center for Middle Eastern and North African Studies. Uh, she's also the incoming president uh, for the Society of East Asian Anthropologists uh, under the American Anthropological Association. Uh, Professor Robertson earned her PhD from Cornell University, uh, where she also earned a BA in the history of art. Um, she's done work in Berlin uh, as well. Uh, she is the originator and general editor of Colonialism, a new book project, a uh, new book series, I should say, from the University of California Press. Colonialism series of books aims to explore the historical realities, current significance, and future ramifications of imperialist practices. Uh, with origins and boundaries outside the West, uh, including transnational corporations and cyberspace. Uh, so it, it's quite interesting. I mean, Jennifer's work is, is based largely in Japan, uh, but her work has always been uh, aiming at bringing Japan into larger debates about theory uh, everywhere, and both contrasting some of the uh, Eurocentric and Western-centric uh, theorizing that goes on, uh, but also engaging uh, very deeply with it. Her five books and many articles address a wide spectrum of subjects from 17th century to the present, including uh, social rectification movements, agrarianism, sex and gender systems and ideologies, mass and popular culture, nostalgia and internationalization, urbanism, and the place of Japan in American anthropology. Publications have been translated into many languages, including German, French, and Japanese. Uh, Finnish as well, I see. Uh, and she teaches widely. Um, uh, her work, I should say, is also, uh, although she works primarily in Japan, she's uh, done research in Sri Lanka and also more recently in Israel as well. Uh, and in addition to her academic work, she's an artist. Uh, she paints, does ceramics, serigraphs, uh, 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 and watercolors. Uh, so she's a many talented person. Uh, it's a great pleasure. I've been dying to get uh, Jennifer Robertson here for part of the Cool Japan lecture series for many years, and I'm glad she found time uh, and came. Uh, it's a topic uh, that is of much interest to us here in MIT, uh, but it's also a topic that speaks uh, to a broader audience as well. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Robertson. Thank you so much, Ian. I hope I can live up to that introduction. Uh, and I want to uh, thank you for organizing uh, my uh, presence here at Cool Japan and, and for the uh, tour, and also to thank, um, Mikey, I forgot your last name. Siegel. Siegel, for uh, arranging a private tour of the uh, MIT Personal Robotics Lab uh, I, that I conducted before this talk. It was great. And it's wonderful to see so many friends and colleagues in the audience, too. And I know it's a busy time of the year for you, but thank you very much for uh, showing up. Uh, let's see. I'm wired, so at yeah, some point I'm sure everything is going to, yeah, everything is going to come apart. Have an acting role. I put this up uh, because I wanted to, yeah, obviously, you know, I was there kind of picture, but I've spent the past several years uh, doing research in robotic laboratories in Japan, attending robo-expositions, uh, conducting interviews, tackling the voluminous uh, literature on uh, robotics in Japanese. And I'm particularly interested in the emerging robot culture in Japan and also human-robot uh, relationships. 
I've uh, written an er earlier article called uh, Robosapiens Japanicus, which is um, really about the philosophical and uh, epistemological dimensions of robotics. But today I'm going to share with you my newer research on uh, robot gendering practices. And I noticed I'm on a metal plate here that is, I'll probably fall through at some point if I stand on it. So there you see me shaking hands with uh, Ashimo, which was a big thrill in my life. But uh, many Japanese roboticists, certainly all of the roboticists that I had an opportunity to visit in Japan, uh, almost all of whom are male, incidentally, I have a picture or figure of uh, Ash uh, Tetsuan Atomu, or the mighty Adam, Astro Boy in English, uh, in their laboratory. And most of them acknowledge that this boy robot inspired them to become roboticists and generated their interest in building sociable robots. And Atomu is arguably the most famous robot uh, cartoon character in Japan. He was created in 1951 by the physician who turned into a cartoonist, Tezuka Osamu, who passed away in 1989. Uh, Tezuka's prototype for uh, Atomu was the girl robot in his comic, Metropolis. And uh, this uh, comic book is not to be confused with Fritz Lang's uh, uh, Metropolis, uh, featuring the fembot uh, Maria, you see there. Uh, this, incidentally, was screened in Japan in 1927. Uh, 1927-1930s, this was a time in Japan where there was a virtual robot boom, and you see this in the popular literature of the time uh, and uh, in the popular culture. But... Um, uh, Osama, uh, I mean Tezuka, was a, uh, an enthusiastic fan of the all-female theatrical review, Takarazuka, about which I've written a book, and you see them here on the right, uh, in which females assume men's roles. Tezuka also created a number of transgendered characters in his comics, such as Sapphire, uh, on the left here, the protagonist in Princess Knight. And like the Takarazuka actor, Sapphire alternates genders, uh, living as both a prince and a princess, as a a man and a woman. Now, Atomu was not the first humanoid robot to inhabit Japanese popular culture, although he's recognized as playing a key role in fostering among post-war Japanese uh, an image of robots as cute, friendly, uh, human-like. And all of these characteristics inform the thriving humanoid robotics industry in Japan today. Now, there's been a lot of interesting scholarship on gender in Japanese uh, anime and comics. Uh, a foremost doyen uh, of that genre is here in the audience, who's a Napier, uh, who's a professor at Tufts University. And uh, I've analyzed uh, in my earlier work the politics of gender uh, in Japan in the Takarazuka Review and other um, genres, uh, other uh, domains. But how are actual robots gendered? And this is the question I ask in my latest research, uh, only a fraction, of course, of which I can share with you today. Um, and my special interest is in humanoid robots, and I'll talk more about what exactly that means uh, in a bit. Now, <clears throat> although a number of humanoids developed over the past decade in Japan have been developed as gender-neutral partner or household robots, there is a recent trend uh, toward the creation of distinctly feminine or female robots and distinctly masculine or male robots. And I want to explore a little bit why this is the case. About eight years ago, uh, Japanese roboticist uh, Matsui uh, Tatsuya, whom you see here, remarked that, and I quote, we need to recognize that robot design is not simply the design of an object, but the design of a whole range of dynamics. 
and uh, I would add, including gender dynamics. And uh, let me just say now that while Japanese roboticists may create gendered robots, they are not particularly interested in interrogating the gender attribution process. Uh, and as I'm going to be showing, they tend to reproduce some very rigid and conventionalized um, and even retrogressive uh, sex and gender stereotypes. Now, there's a very, I want to, um, uh, just to get us all on the same uh, level here, to quickly review how I'm using the terms sex and gender and sexuality. I'm not going to be talking so much about sexuality in today's talk. But this is a sticker uh, from my dry cleaner in um, Tokyo, and I think it uh, <laughs> really illustrates perfectly uh, what I'm going to be describing. Um, this is a little boy who says, gee, how are we different? And the, the ostensibly girl says, the difference is really clear. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so when we talk about sex um, in anthropology and for analytical purposes, we're talking about the, the physical body, the biological body that's distinguished by female or male genitalia, sometimes both, and their usual biological and anatomical capabilities, um, such as menstruation, lactation, seminal ejaculation, orgasm, and uh, so on and so forth. By gender, and the same picture works here too, uh, we're talking about social uh, and cultural and historical conventions of deportment, of body language, of costume, posture, gesture, speech, and all of these things that are attributed and ascribed to male and female bodies. And bisexuality, and this is a relief from Kajurao uh, in India, uh, we're talking about uh, something that overlaps with sex and gender, but it refers to a domain of pleasure and erotic desire that's very complex and certainly much more varied and inventive than uh, conveyed by the 19th century terms uh, homosexual and heterosexual. And sexuality is certainly much more complex than the urge to procreate. And I'm sure everybody in this audience knows that already. But it's surprising how um, the media doesn't seem to understand that. Okay. I wanted to um, give you some uh, illustrations of how in Japan, historically and at present, there is a lot of slippage between uh, sex, gender, and sexuality. And this is kind of ironic uh, in a sense because even with this history of slippage and fluidity among sex, gender, and sexuality, you find roboticists kind of collapsing these and resorting to this sort of dichotomous pink and blue kind of distinction between masculine, feminine, male, and female. Here is a statue of the Buddhist uh, uh, deity of mercy, uh, Kannon, in both a feminine and a masculine uh, guise. Uh, the samurai of Japan in the pre-modern period uh, up through the late 19th century uh, regarded same-sex relations uh, as the highest form of love, and many of the shoguns uh, had uh, not only uh, a primary wife, a concubine, a secondary wife, but hundreds, in some cases, of male lovers. Uh, you have the Kabuki Theater, uh, founded 400 years ago, which um, involves males performing as women, and the Takarazuka Theater, where you have females performing as men. And this is not, you know, some uh, backstreet theater. This is mainstream uh, public family theater in Japan. Uh, in Japan, you have 
uh, clubs, such as the Elizabeth Club. Sorry, the, this computer has altered my fonts uh, a little bit. But you have the Elizabeth Club, where ordinary Japanese males can dress up as women after work, and they consider this a form of stress release. Uh, and you have uh, clubs like Club Maryland, where females pass as men and cater to uh, a largely uh, female um, clientele. There is uh, also the uh, well-known um, rock group in Japan, Ikochi, where the lead uh, singer is a transsexual, uh, male to female. And Spa Magazine, uh, a leading popular magazine in Japan, recently had an issue on bisexuality. So these are all, this slippage is all out there in the public. Um, you know, the stuff of uh, television talk shows and uh, newspaper articles. And, of course, art performances. And this is the artist Morimura Yasumasa performing uh, and photographing himself as Bridget Bardot here and as Marilyn Monroe there. And finally, uh, oops, I guess that's the... Go back here. I thought I had one more. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, as I said, I'm not going to be talking about sexuality, but I want you to keep in mind this history and also the present reality of the slippage and the fluid nature of sex and gender in Japan. Now, in humans, gender is a concept and a performance embodied by females and males. It's what you might call a corporeal or bodily technology that is produced dialectically. It's the uh, masculinity highlights femininity and vice versa. They work uh, in tandem. Now, the process of gendering robots makes especially clear that gender belongs to the order of the material body and various uh, social and semiotic systems that bodies are embedded in. Now, how do robots embody ideas and notions of the relationship between sex and gender? And I'm interested here in why and how Japanese roboticists design and attribute to their creatures femininity, masculinity, and in some cases, gender neutrality. And you see here an array of robots, uh, humanoid, more animal-like, and also android, or as they call, uh, gynoid. And I'm going to be talking about uh, these types of humanoids that approximate a human form, whether they're bipedal or on wheels, and also the androids and gynoids that are uh, also being created. Now, much of what roboticists like Matsui Tatsuya and here Ishiguro Hiroshi take for granted about their own gender socialization and their own everyday lives, and many of them are married, is reproduced and even reified and certainly ideologized in the robots that they design. So, ro so gender for them constitutes a kind of a common sense knowledge. It's something they take for granted, they see as self-evident, uh, and they don't find how they're gendering their robots to warrant any kind of investigation or, any kind, or generate any kinds of questions. It's considered to be a factual thing. And you see here Ishiguro and his assistants, and some of you may realize that this is the, the android. This is their robot that they're all working on here. Now, the social world or the context within which humanoid robotics uh, are imagined to play an important role in Japanese society is both the rapidly aging population, the radically declining birth rate in Japan, and the consequent... Um, labor uh, shortage. There's a very serious labor shortage in Japan. 
And the idea is that to develop robots that can work in uh, settings designed for humans, whether the home or factories, is more desirable, at this point at least, this may change, than, um, than uh, inviting um, foreign uh, migrant workers um, to take the place of um, Japanese. Let's look at some demographic uh, figures here. The current population is about 127.8 uh, point, uh, million. Over 21% of the current population is over 65 years of age. It's the fastest growing population of senior citizens in the world, although Italy is catching up. The birth rate is virtually flat, and in fact, um, the rate of um, death has surpassed the birth rate. And it was estimated um, in 1995 that 600,000 immigrants were necessary to keep the labor um, force at its 1995 level. That has not happened at all. So it's estimated that, um, you know, in another 20 years, the population will be at 110 million, and then will fall uh, even further to 90 million by 2055, at which point over 40% of the population will be over 65. So this is the, the kind of dire, um, you know, almost Malthusian specter that is informing the uh, humanoid robotics industry um, in Japan today. So to make a long story short, these demographic factors are not really being addressed by the state as political, social, uh, economic, uh, or historical problems, but as technological problems requiring technological solutions. So in part to redress this dismal demographic forecast, Japanese um, roboticists are working on developing not only household robots, but also um, equipment like uh, an artificial uterus, or an ectogenetic chamber, as it's called, uh, that can bypass human females and um, you know, reproduce the nation. And that's a related uh, topic, but it's not one that I'm going to be able to discuss here. It's really, really interesting. So people are living longer in Japan. The average uh, rate of mortality is um, 85 years of age. And not only are women uh, delaying and even eschewing marriage, but even married women are essentially choosing not to reproduce. And uh, they are referred to disparagingly in the mass media by conservatives as selfish or as parasites. They're eschewing their responsibilities to reproduce the nation. Now, the premium... Oops. The premium... Is this moving on its own? No. Okay. The premium uh, placed on technology as domestic policy is clearly evident in Innovation 25, which, is, um, which was uh, offered to the Japanese public in February 2007 as the blueprint of the future of Japan now uh, 18 years from now. Is that right? No. Uh, 17, uh, what is it? 16 years from now. Every time I give this talk, I have to change the, the date. Um, and this uh, Innovation 25 uh, is um, basically, basically aims at um, roboticizing Japanese society. Uh, and roboticizing the household by 2025. It's kind of a back-to-the-future world in which housewife robots will take on childcare and housekeeping uh, responsibilities so that human housewives will be uh, more comfortable about having more children. Uh, so the, the robots are kind of considered to be um, to duplicate the, um, the, the domestic labor of housewives. <coughs> And here you see a picture from Innovation 25 
of the uh, imagined um, responsibilities of a housewife uh, robot. You can access this uh, Innovation 25 report and all of the attached cartoons on the Prime Minister's website um, for Japan, by the way. Now, already in Japan, there is a market for intelligent autonomous, not necessarily remote-controlled, robots um, who will fill a number of functions, and sometimes several functions at once. And this is from the uh, Takanishi Lab at Waseda University. Um, I'm working primarily with Waseda University roboticists. And it shows the humanoid robot here involved in entertainment, education, art, search and rescue, medicine, and welfare, and also housework. So let me just uh, give you a a sampling of some of the robots that are currently available. Some of uh, them are actually on the market uh, in Japan today. You have security robots that can put out fires and capture uh, (laughs) burglars or noisy you know, junior high school kids. Uh, You have security robots in shopping malls now, Japan. You have Wakamaru, designed by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. It was designed as a child care robot and also as a personal valet. It was just recently taken off the market, and the problem is that kids can easily get their fingers severed (laughs) in the joints of these things, although they, so they, they're, st- they're working on, you know, refining the, um, you know, the safety features of these robots. But you can see how even in the PR for Wakamaru, it's imagined as cohabiting um, with families. Um, it's considered to be a, a, a family member, um, actually. You have Posey, and you saw a picture of Posey earlier with Matsuya, and the PR for um, Posey is, by creating Posey, I hope to unleash a weapon of peace, which is kind of ominous. But uh, I'll talk, be talking uh, very specifically about Posey a little bit later. Uh, there is Cowdy the sex robot. And I like to throw this up because she's the only unintelligent robot uh, that I show. <laughs> uh, only needs a couple of schwinkters, um, no uh, <laughs> sophisticated algorithms. Um, you have... Uh, <laughs> You have Nouveau, who's considered to be a um, a kind of a housekeeper and um, security system robot that basically photographs your home and sends the images to the mobile phone so you can see, you know, if anything is amiss. Uh, There's Riman, the uh, humanoid robot that's designed to help care for infirm uh, patients by helping to turn them over. Because you find in Japan now it's the elderly who are taking care of the elderly and they don't necessarily have the physical strength to do some of the uh, required tasks. There's Papiro, uh, which is marketed now, quite uh, successful. The child care robot, it can uh, play games, um, give uh, math lessons, even English lessons to uh, children. It's connected um, to um, a radio frequency uh, system, so it can also track the whereabouts of children, and uh, parents can access Um, images of their children, whether they're doing their homework or playing um, video games, um, through the cameras um, that are linked to the cell phones. So there's, you know, the surveillance aspect of humanoid robotics in Japan is very, very significant, and it's something to keep in mind. This is a babysitter robot now employed at uh, a shopping mall in Fukuoka City, and again, a radio frequency tag on this child and the robot sort of... uh, tracks and traces down, uh, traces um, the whereabouts of uh, children while their mothers uh, shop or have their hair done. 
Okay, we're back to um, something called cultural um, genitals, which is uh, really interesting. And I should probably back up because I got a little ahead of myself here. But by um, 2016, uh, there, each household in Japan is predicted to own at least one robot. And the size of the humanoid robot market is uh, expected to top about 18.6 million units. This is a huge number of uh, robots. And globally, robots are forecasted to be, um, in this century, what the Japanese automobile was in the last century. And Japan already commands uh, over 40% of the global market in robotics. Singapore and Korea are a distant second, and the United States is quite low, actually. Um, Now, one more uh, point I want to make about gender before I get into the specifics about gendering humanoid robots Gender attribution is a process of reality construction. And in my investigation of the criteria by which robots, roboticists assign gender, it became clear that their common sense, sort of self-evident concept of femininity and masculinity informed their imagination of a robot's cultural genitals. Now, this is a, a... a term that might seem a bit oxymoronic, but because obviously robots lack actual physical genitals, and they play genitals play no role in the gendering of robots as they do in newborn babies. Uh, you know, if it's got this or doesn't have that, it's given a pink or blue blanket or balloon. Now, as explained by psychologists uh, Suzanne Kessler and Wendy McKenna, in the absence of the visibility of actual physical genitalia, which is usually the case among men and women, you can look around this room, nobody's naked, Uh, cultural genitals are invoked in attributing gender. And uh, I I like their work so much, and it's so apt uh, with respect to um, robot gender attribution that I I put it up here for you. The relationship between cultural genitals and gender attribution is reflexive. The reality of a gender is proved by the genital which is attributed. And at the same time, the attributed gender only has meaning through the socially shared construction of the gender attribution process. So it's a a dialectical thing, um, a circular uh, process, um, mutually um, referential. So before I expand on the business of equipping robots with cultural genitals, it's really crucial to understand at this juncture why in Japan robots are regarded as benign living creatures and even as potential family members. And there are two critical cultural factors here that I need to uh, share with you. One is um, the Japanese um, originary belief system, Shinto, or the way of the kami. And kami, uh, it's an animistic system. Uh, Kami are could be described as uh, a kind of a vital essence uh, and animating force um, that inhabits both rocks and trees and cars and humans and living creatures uh, alike. And uh, often, in fact, often I would say 99% of the time, roboticists will tell me that it's Shinto that enables them to think about robots as living together with humans, as coexisting with humans, as being recognized as members of the family. They're not foreign. They are living things, uh, and they are 
Um, they occupy the same uh, world uh, that human beings do. The other concept is uh, inochi, which is the Japanese term for life. And there are three uh, fundamental or key definitions of uh, life that uh, are important here. On the one, uh, one definition is a power that infuses sentient beings from generation to generation. So this, this sort of continuity. Uh, another is the more literal one that we might associate with um, life, and that is a period between birth and death. And the definition that is really most salient to robotics is the notion that inochi is the most essential quality of something, whether it is a living thing or a made object. And that gets back to the, the Shinto idea of robots, uh, theatrical puppets, for example, being infused with this uh, vital essence that is a form of life. It's a little bit different from humans, but it's a form of life. They share the same um, world. Now, what has distinguished Japanese robotics early on, and now almost uh, all roboticists uh, uh, in every country with a a robotics um, field have followed suit, and this is the concept of embodied intelligence or embodied cognition. Now, and you probably recognize this as Einstein here. It's called the Einstein robot. Roboticists point out that intelligence cannot merely exist in the form of an algorithm, you know, this early AI that was limited to computers, but it requires a physical instantiation, a material body. And embodied intelligence is premised on the idea that learning is occasioned by a body, whether it's a human body or a robotic body, that is in continual active engagement with its environment or its surroundings. So cognitive processes originate in an organism's sensory motor experience. This is how children learn. And um, Japanese roboticists are working with child development specialists in creating these learning algorithms. They They watch children as they crawl across the floor using all of their sensory motor system, their sense of touch, taste, that, you know, kids put everything in their mouths, um, feel, um, uh, you know, hearing, and, of course, the admonitions of parents or, or guardian figures. And they incorporate that uh, into the algorithms that they design for their robots. So robotics in Japan, and I think also in the United States, is a very interdisciplinary field. It melds the arts and the sciences. This is a really critical point. And for me, as an anthropologist, it's really exciting. So a dynamic interaction between a robot and its environment is the very source of emergent autonomous behavior, as opposed to behavior initiated by you know, an external control system, some sort of remote control system. The Japanese are interested in creating autonomy uh, in robots. Now, there's considerable debate in Japan. Oh, I, this is, I meant to put this up about the embodied... Um, uh, intelligence and learning from the environment. And you can see here Ashimo serving tea to, uh, this of course is the Honda Research Laboratory, uh, not a coffee shop, housewife robot here, another robot uh, that is um, learning and um, doing a kind of a salvage anthropology in its own right of, of dying Japanese dance forms. I, I think a lot of robots are serving as these sort of um, repositories of uh, dying traditions actually in Japan. Now, there's a considerable debate among roboticists about what embodiment entails um, and, you know, how human-like, much less how female-like, how male-like, should or should not humanoid robots look. 
how should their bodies be proportioned? Should they be bipedal or move around on wheels? Now, there are basically two categories of humanoid robots with respect to their gendered embodiment. One is the android or the gynoid uh, that is uh, made out of various uh, new synthetic materials to actually pass as human. And the other is a robot that approximates human morphology. It has a head, it has a torso, it has arms, it has kind of legs. And um, I'm interested um, in, in both, but especially in the, uh, ro- the humanoids um, that uh, are increasingly being uh, provided with gender. <clears throat> now, at this juncture, let me digress a little bit um, at length on gendering practices that are contingent upon shape, color, uh, function, and also sociolinguistic function. These robots are equipped with a voice. How do you choose the voice of a robot? It's a fascinating question. Now, feminists were very uh, instrumental in establishing the now accepted view that bodies are not simply given or neutral, and there are at least two kinds of bodies, um, female and male. And of course, you might say female and male, but these female and male bodies are distinguished by a great deal of biological variability from phenotype to physiology. And you even have the case of intersexed uh, individuals, and there are a lot more intersexed uh, babies than are admitted. They're usually <laughs> surgically corrected at birth, but there's a great deal of variability among humans. And this is why I use uh, variability after uh, Kessler and McKenna and their um, very, very uh, um, path-breaking work on the ethnomethodology of gender. Now, that said, um, lost my place here because I was, let's see. Now, a number of, um, oh yeah, gender is not simply an inherent feature or characteristic of a given male body or female body. So you have in the Kabuki uh, uh, theater a male body performing as a woman, uh, in Takarazuka a female body performing as a man. So, you know, gender slips around bodies. It's, it's, uh, it's separated from bodies. Now, a number of anthropologists, including myself, have demonstrated that gender, um, you know, can be performed by uh, any number of bodies, and I already showed you images of that slipperiness of um, the relationship of sex and gender. What's interesting, though, is that both of these theaters, even though the performers themselves are kind of flouting the connectivity of sex and gender, at the same time, both of these theaters uh, actually um, reproduce dominant and conventional stereotypes of femininity and masculinity. And that's a, a whole other issue. But what's important to remember is that the kind of body matters and the meaning and function of gender that emerges in practice. The relationship between human bodies and genders is a contingent one. And I would like you to keep that notion of contingency in mind because it's exactly what is not um, understood or acted upon uh, by roboticists who are gendering <coughs> robots. Um, I just wanted to show you this picture, which I found the other day on the internet, um, as a, an example of uh, how Japanese um, uh, roboticists are not particularly interrogating the ways in which uh, gender is regarded as a very uh, slippery phenomenon, um, you know, um, 
uh, even you know the lingerie makers in Japan are now producing these sort of men's premium bras, uh, and that ties in with the uh, cross-dressing clubs that I showed you uh, earlier. This this is unthinkable when it comes to the way in which um, robots are being uh, gendered, and these robot designers. Uh, and also the executors, the government ministry who put out Innovation 25, um, they all tend to uncritically reproduce and reinforce these very dominant stereotypes attached to female and male bodies. Now, a discussion of Ishiguro's androids and gynoids really make the point, the theoretical point, um, uh, vivid. Uh, Ishiguro's first uh, adult android Actroid Replier Q1 was modeled after uh, television new newscaster Fuji uh, Ayako. And it was covered in a uh, skin-like silicone. Um, she uh, made her debut at the 2005 World Expo uh, in Aichi Prefecture. She uh, had very sophisticated actuators that made it possible for her to mimic Fuji's facial and upper body movements. So she could react uh, what we might call naturally. And Japanese roboticists um, have paid a lot of attention to not just creating a, a lifelike, a human-like uh, form, but also making it sort of twitch and sort of move in all these imperceptible ways that give it that uncanny uh, human uh, quality. So it's these little unconscious movements that give this robot her uh, eerie verisimilitude, you know, the slight flutter of the eyelids, the rising and falling of the chest as she breathes, uh, and the constant, nearly imperceptible shifting that humans do. So it's constantly moving. If you really, you can uh, watch a number of YouTubes, and we're going to show one in a minute, uh, which, um, which demonstrates this. Now, she's not bipedal. She can't walk, so she's got to um, sit here. And uh, Ishiguro created a second actroid, who also debuted at the same expo in 2005. But instead of utilizing an actual female model, uh, what his laboratory did was scan the faces of about 100 young Japanese women to come up with the archetypical Japanese face. And I have a, uh, on this robot, I have a, a longer uh, paper I did on the notion of anthropometry, but this also ties back into some early eugenics experiments by Francis Galton, who coined the term eugenics, uh, where he took composite photographs to try to get at the essence of uh, you know, specific groups, from prostitutes and criminals to physicians in Boston, in fact. So they are, and there's a, a, an institute of facial studies, actually, in Tokyo that is also trying to find the uh, essential face of a banker or a politician or cheerleaders. Uh, it's really uh, quite amazing. And so here's the, the face of, uh, you know, 2005, uh, the 2005 Japanese woman. So the result is both an anonymous and a singular Japanese female face. Uh, so for Ishiguro, a face is a constellation of uh, features of not just an individual's gender identity, but also a topographical map uh, of and for a national ethnic identity that's gendered in this case. It's, it's a really interesting um, uh, spin-off um, that, that uh, you know, I could do a whole paper on for you. So Actroid Replier's designers uh, clearly equated gender and femininity with nationality or ethnicity. 
And this also is evident uh, in her uh, voice as well. Now, this actroid speaks four languages, and she was used as a receptionist at uh, Expo 2005 and now is rented out as a receptionist uh, at a number of corporations um, in Japan. Uh, this is another version of actroid replie, um, the same uh, face of the uh, average Japanese woman. Uh, you are attracted by her girlish gestures. She also does best work as a guide with her outstanding eye-catching effect. She has a pretty face. She's cute. She's available in short hair uh, as well. <laughs> and uh, Ian, this is where you go to. Right. I just wanted to play uh, for you this uh, actroid at an expo in her I Love Hello Kitty uh, shirt. It's a, a short clip. It's hiding down at the bottom. That's hiding down oh, at the bottom. There it is. Yeah. That's these Mac computers. I, I don't have a Mac. I notice that there's overwhelming. This is Mac City here. Okay. And we have volume on that? And you can watch this as well. It goes on a little uh, further. But you can, you can see that her um, Japanese femininity is underscored by her high-pitched and somewhat childish uh, voice, uh, which is uh, a still salient marker in everyday life in Japan of ideal-type femininity. So the roboticists are effectively reinforcing the stereotype of Japanese women's language and Japanese men's language. Um, and they treat these as very uh, essentialized um, and essentializing performances. And based on my fieldwork uh, uh, at these robo shows and interviews with um, roboticists, it's my belief that uh, most roboticists would not think of a high-pitched uh, girlish voice as unnatural. They, that for them, that is the natural female voice. And uh, linguists like, um, uh, what's, uh, is it Sharon Shibamoto? I forgot her first name. Yeah. Janet Shibamoto uh, has um, written a number of articles about high f how high, uh, a high voice pitch is a feminine ideal and a cultural constraint promoted in recent history by the government in collusion with the popular media. So you're getting then this uh, you know, invented um, gender ideal reinforced by robot uh, designers. Now, this gynoid that you just viewed is overdeterminedly conventionally feminine, from her breathy, high-pitched voice to her fashionably shaggy brown hair, her manicured nails, her I love Hello Kitty cheerleader white sweatshirt, her black miniskirt hemmed with white lace, her chartreuse pumps festooned with a large bow of the same color. And a part that you didn't see in this video, she protectively covers her chest and says, you better not touch that, that's sexual harassment. So you sort of wonder what, uh, you sort of wonder who exactly her target audience is here. You know? I hate to think of her future employment. 
some cosplay bar or something in Japan. <clears throat> anyway, well, meanwhile, <clears throat> in July 2006, uh, Ishiguro's robot lab built this uh, clone of Ishiguro himself named Geminoid HI1. And uh, HI is for Ishiguro Hiroshi. Uh, the android wears his maker's unfashionable beige shirt, dark trousers, and black windbreaker jacket. And in contrast to Actroid Repli AQ1, uh, in contrast, Actroid Repli AQ1 was not named uh, uh, Geminoid AF1 for, you know, um, uh, Fuji Ayako, uh, which suggests that the gynoid, as opposed to Geminoid here, was conceived as a replica, a replique from the French, of or as a replacement for uh, Fuji and not her body double as um, uh, Hiroshi's uh, or Ishiguro's um, Geminoid is, um, was uh, created uh, to be. And what's interesting is that uh, roboticist Takahashi Tomotaka, who's probably one of the wealthiest men in Japan at this point, uh, and he's a roboticist com uh, committed uh, to creating feminine female robots, and I'll show you some in a minute, he predicts that over half of all the humanoids produced in Japan uh, will be fembots, will be female robots in the future. Now, will females be replaced by their humanoid counterparts within decades? Uh, you already see here uh, advertising about the Actroid, who is uh, a working girl, and you see her as a receptionist, uh, a tour guide, um, a businesswoman, uh, a maid in a bar, you know, coffee shop, uh, and a nurse. Um, so these roboticists are imagining uh, these gynoids um, as um, having um, employment in upmarket coffee shop, in bars and in information booths, in office complexes, museums where they would give directions and greet visitors, and even to interview um, patients uh, who are uh, entering uh, a hospital or a clinic. These uh, actroids can be rented at about $1,000 a day, and um, their uh, uh, algorithms can also be choreographed um, to fit the specific type of uh, employment. Now, the notion of robot replacements for professional human females is not so far-fetched. This precedent was set over a decade ago in 1996 when Horipro, a talent agency, introduced Date Kyoko, whom you see here, as the first of now hundreds of computer-generated cyber or virtual idols. And uh, she even cut her own uh, CD and uh, had a TV show for a while. Now, the following year, in 1997, uh, virtual idol Terai Yuki was launched by the Japanese company called Etage as a product of... Uh, uh, and of special interest to a, a Japanese sort of geek uh, subculture. And uh, in 2000, just about <clears throat> eight and a half years ago, her computer-generated body uh, was um, incorporated into a, a toothpaste uh, commercial. I have to get a cough drop. I'm just getting over a really, really bad cold, so my voice is getting a bit scratchy at this point. Excuse me for a sec here. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. <clears throat> At which point I should have brought my own clone, but it's, uh, not, it's in, not in, in a very undeveloped stage. Uh, okay, so do 
a Kleenex by any chance? I seem to have lost mine. I was wondering a little bit. <clears throat> so I wanted to show you. Um, oh, we got to get. Oh, never mind. Ian, I need you to put up yes, another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, YouTube. I wanted to show you um, a uh, YouTube of uh, uh, Ishiguro's Geminoid. Uh, it's really very interesting. And um, <clears throat> he has created uh, this um, android as his twin or a body double through which he can distribute his uh, authority. And you might even say he can distribute his personhood. It's um, controlled by a motion capture interface. And as you'll see in this video, you can turn it on now, <coughs> he can um, imitate all of Ishiguro's very distinctive um, body and facial movements. <clears throat> and also reproduce uh, Ishiguro's own voice, so he doesn't have to uh, create uh, a synthetic voice for this uh, android. And he wants to develop this um, android to such a degree <coughs> that he can teach his classes at Osaka University from his home. And the android, wish I had, I wish I had one right now. The android would do the teaching. I apologize. I haven't um, had a chance to give an extended lecture after this cold a long time because we were on a spring break last week. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> to then summarize from a really limited example based on Ishiguro's creations, because there are a number of actroids, there are a number of gynoids, but there's only one android. There's only, this is the only uh, uh, you know, model uh, of a, a male um, human-like robot that has been uh, created. Ishiguro is pretty stingy. Nobody else in his lab can create their um, clone. But whereas um, fembots have been designed to replace flesh-and-blood females, these androids, or malebots, <clears throat> are designed to augment and multiply the agency of a particular human male, in this case, Ishiguro. So basically, roboticists are reinforcing and not challenging dominant and dichotomous traditional constructions of sex and gender. And I've made that point a number of times. Now, this is glaringly obvious in a wonderful new film called Mechanical Love, which is produced by a Danish filmmaker called Fee Ambo. And Ishiguro is among the uh, various humanoid robots and their makers uh, featured in the film. And I wanted to quote from a review because it really... Um, 
I think, accurately captures this sort of disconnect between these roboticists who have these very involved relationships with their robots and the nature of the relationship that they have with their wives and their children. So while he painstakingly creates geminoids like himself, his wife, and his daughter, <clears throat> and here you see the daughter's um, gynoid and the real human daughter here, it is in eerie contrast to his real life. Here is a man who is trying to help with companionship and interaction, but who seems to have trouble with it himself, although it seems that he doesn't realize this, and it's true, he's out there. He speaks coldly of his wife, he rarely smiles, and the only human interest he seems to have is for his young daughter. And she, in turn, is really uncomfortable with the robots he's creating. And, uh, <clears throat> and in my experience of roboticists, they are not really part of the world that you and I uh, occupy uh, at all. I have to say, I'm <laughs> apologies to. Now, now, as I mentioned earlier, female and male bodies are distinguished by a great deal of variability and that the relationship between bodies and genders is a contingent one. But these humanoid robots render this relationship between bodies and gender uh, as a fixed uh, and necessary one. And, you know, it's, it's disturbing because these are robots that are designed to interact with humans in... Uh, human society in environments that have been shaped uh, by humans. Now, this uh, notion of bodies and genders being constructed as fixed and necessary is really obvious uh, in the case of the very, uh, very new robot that uh, debuted last year called FT. Um, and this is the result of um, Takahashi's desire to create a female-type robot. He's really the guy who's responsible for um, expressly pushing a gendered um, uh, creation uh, in the robot industry. And he interviewed basically all of these fashion models so that he could figure out an algorithm that would allow this uh, miniature robot to walk like a woman. And you can see, the vi I'm not going to play the... Um, the uh, YouTube, but uh, she really walks just like a model and then turns like this and then turns around like that. And, you know, I can't do it very well, but uh, <laughs> at least I won't do it very well. <laughs> but she's um, 13 inches high. She's a kind of a diva butt. Um, and she weighs less than two pounds and has 23 gyro motors controlled by an onboard computer that enable her performance. And instead of having a backpack, she has this sort of front pack here, which gives her also a, a female uh, appearance. So not only were her body parts designed to express a lean feminine body line, but as I mentioned, he consulted with a number of professional female um, uh, uh, models so that she could develop this uh, uh, catwalk-like uh, motion. Now, incidentally, it's interesting to note that uh, female types uh, contours, as uh, is the case with a lot of uh, gendered robots in Japan, follow the proportions developed by anime uh, illustrators. And this is from the website, you know, animeworld.com, where you can get anime drawing lessons. They create machines whose proportions express uh, their gender. 
And as with faces, the Japanese animation style body is an exaggeration of a real human being. And you can exaggerate uh, to any extent you want, but basically what is um, emphasized is the shorter tor torso and the longer legs. And then you take features of an idealized woman and make them even more ideal. So, you know, long, thin arms, uh, small body, slim waist, usually um, a, a biggish chest. Uh, hips are pretty slim and a long, thin neck. And you can see this animation, um, you know, um, uh, style being replicated <laughs> in gendered uh, robots and informing the type of gender that is attributed. So what's interesting is that um, just as uh, kabuki actors who specialize in performing femininity and, and now um, who have historically been regarded as models of femininity for actual females to emulate, it appears that these gynoids designed by male roboticists, are now setting a standard for um, female and feminine performance and gesture and reinforce the quintessential feminine nature of jobs like nurses and receptionists and hostesses. So you're getting this sort of fixing, necessary fixing now, of uh, gendered bodies and uh, occupations and professions. And it continues to reproduce the glass ceiling that already uh, exists in Japan with respect to um, job opportunities. Now let's take a look at the gendering of humanoid robots that are not made to pass as real human beings. And um, in many cases, the shape of an a, uh, a, a robot may appear to be ambiguous. And so sometimes they're given uh, a, pre a suffix to their name like kun. And this is wakamaru kun. And kun is a prefix that suggests um, masculinity. And you may think of this as a, a robot in a kind of a petticoat, but actually the robot's shape uh, comes from Japanese formal men's kimono. Uh, and so wakamaru is within a Japanese sort of sartorial code, gendered male. And wakamaru, in fact, is also named after the immortalized 12th century samurai hero Minamoto Yoshitsune, whose childhood name was Ushiwaka. You get this wakamaru from that. So it's kind of overdeterminedly masculine, but unless you're familiar with Japanese cultural conventions, you may not realize this. Now, more often, a sense of uh, humanish familiarity of the metallic-looking humanoids is achieved by making them look more childlike. And this is achieved primarily by giving them larger heads, uh, heads that are uh, bigger in proportion to their bodies. And Papero, the childcare robot, is, uh, you know, one-third head, basically. Now we get to two humanoids, uh, Posey and Pino, specifically uh, and obviously and self-consciously designed as male and female gendered entities. Now, Matsui Tatsuya, who designed both of these humanoids, believes that bodily aesthetics is a technological issue. And it's an issue that's inseparable from a robot's primary mechanical function. So they're thinking of aesthetics, and they're thinking of aesthetics as something that also pertains to gender. So Matsui, along with Ishiguro and other researchers, recognized early on that child-size androids wigged people out. People, they were just too creepy. 
uh, and uncanny, and there's a, a, a theory um, that goes with that. But it's not the case with adult uh, androids. Adult androids don't wig people out, and they don't find them creepy. But a humanoid robot that is too big does freak people out. So the humanoid robots that approximate human morphology have been diminishing in size. Uh, and I put my, um, my picture with Ashimo here to give you a sense of how Ashimo has shrunk in size. So now it is considered to be le- not threatening, more likely to be uh, embraced as a household uh, companion. So the scale uh, is an important thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with robots too. And you'll find that many of the fembots are much, much smaller than the, the boybots uh, in Japan. Now, the bipedal Pino, whose pointy nose recapitulates um, that of his Italian namesake, Pinocchio. You can see him lying here on his girlfriend's lap. (laughs) He was scaled to the size of a one-year-old child taking his first steps. Uh, So he's about 75 uh, centimeters uh, tall. And he also has a, a head that's much larger in proportion to his body. Uh, most adults have a body that is seven heads in length, and Pino um, is um, about four and a half heads tall. Now, Pino's head was made disproportionately large so that uh, he would achieve a more childlike and unthreatening look. Now, he's a male-gendered uh, robot, and this is um, obvious because uh, conventionalized masculine gender markers, uh, such as a squarish head, an angular jaw, well-developed chin, sturdy neck, straight shoulders, uh, have been incorporated into his design. He doesn't have a face, but his visor changes colors depending on his so-called mood. Now, unlike Pino, whose body is um, unfinished, in the sense that the mechanical components are visible, Posey's veiled body imparts a sense of modesty and innocence. And although Matsui modeled Posey after a flower girl, flower girl at a wedding, he claims that he imagines her serving as a receptionist, a typical job, it seems, for human females and gynoids alike. And uh, Matsui also thinks that flowers are an apt metaphor for robots because they are essentially fragile and they share a certain fragility with human beings, which makes them endearing and uh, happy, and so his company is named Flower Robotics for that uh, reason. Now I'm going to wind up, <clears throat> and um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what I call reactionary gendered uh, postmodernism. Now, as I mentioned, robotics in Japan today was spurred by demographic problems facing Japanese society. And, you know, women are refusing to give uh, birth. They're postponing marriage. Um, How will robots change these disturbing trends? Now, it was interesting to me to realize that from their writings and from our conversations, roboticists have a rather conservative uh, sociocultural agenda for their high-tech creations. And this is blatantly evident in the image of the kind of household that they imagine a robot sharing with humans. And this is a picture I took from a 1942 uh, propaganda magazine in Japan encouraging women to give birth to lots of children to grow the nation uh, during wartime. And essentially, this is the image of the family, this extended family, uh, into which robots uh, uh, 
uh, will um, be inserted. And uh, it was shocking to me, really, to interview cabinet ministers involved with Innovation 25 to realize that this is how they imagine robots, uh, the kind of family they imagine robots joining. Uh, again, this was an image that was designed to boost fertility, which is a problem today as well. So in my view, much of humanoid robotics in Japan today represents an ethos of technological progress that is conjoined with an ethos of revanchism. And respect, with respect to the gendering of humanoid robots, I call this reactionary gendered postmodernism. And I'm using um, the, terms, uh, the term reactionary postmodernism um, after Hal Foster and, and Susan Foster. And basically what I mean by reactionary postmodernism is um, a kind of pastiche of pseudo-historical forms, of nostalgic, idealized forms that uh, exploits uh, nostalgia, that exploits the status quo. And in this case, that would refer to the extended uh, patriarchal uh, family and all of the associated gender roles. <clears throat> Innovation 25 then further popularizes um, the idea of childbirth um, made possible by the presence of housewife robots uh, who will relieve uh, human um, housewives from assorted childcare and housecare uh, duties. And Innovation 25 uh, develops a very traditionalist view of the Japanese family, uh, but it refers to the Japanese family um, as a kind of a post-human uh, post uh, phenomenon. And what we mean by a post-human, which is not at all in uh, contrast to uh, or doesn't contradict the idea of traditionalism, of, of high-tech entities, postmodernism really refers to humans whose capacities are radically enhanced through technological means so that they can surpass the... Um, the capabilities of ordinary or unenhanced humans. And of course, the postmodern condition is a staple of Japanese animation and comics. And in effect, we are all postmodern, those of us who wear glasses or who've had implants or prostheses. So postmodern uh, posthumanism in this sense is not new, but I think it is accurate to say that this trend, um, this trend of uh, becoming dependent on technology and even converging with machines is actualizing more explicitly and even more relentlessly in Japan than anywhere else in the world. And the Japanese state is perhaps the first to organize and orchestrate society around robot technology in the name of physical and ontological comfort and convenience. So humanoid robots are being promoted as the solution to the declining and aging population and even as a substitute for replacement migration. So robot uh, inventors um, are imagineers, but not just of robot bodies, uh, but also of the cultural configuration and social arrangements and environments that these robots are going to um, participate in. And the act of imagining per se and the act of working with high-tech creations per se does not necessarily mean that the results are creative uh, or progressive or, or, um, or uh, innovative. 
And in fact, Innovation 25 could be renamed Renovation 25. But these technologies don't really transcend heterosexism. There are a lot of people who work only on animation, for example, and see these technologies uh, as enabling humans to transcend um, certain kinds of conventional limitations. But that's not necessarily the case in Japan. What you see are entities that reinforce institutional sexism, they reinforce conventional gender roles, and they have uh, certainly um, underscored the continued uh, presence of a certain xenophobic streak in Japan and the glass ceilings uh, for uh, females, uh, along with the patriarchal um, household as a vision of Japanese post-human society. And I think I'll stop there because it, it's uh, between my hacking and coughing and uh, all of the, um, the YouTubes. Uh, I have taxed your patience. But thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Um, is this on? Okay. Uh, great talk. I find it really fascinating. I was wondering, just your last point made me think of something I was actually thinking about earlier as well, um, which is just supposing, and this is uh, very, maybe very counterfactual mm -hmm. and maybe even devil's advocate, but what if this um, need to go back and kind of reinforce gender is simply um, a transitional process mm -hmm. in going towards something else? Mm -hmm. And the reason I was thinking about that is you had a um, one, only one slide of that mm -hmm. babysitter in Fukuoka who looked, the robot, who looked to me like a cat, mm -hmm. uh, not a human at all, gendered either way. And I was thinking that perhaps, uh, and I know this is very utopian of me, but, but uh -huh. maybe uh, we could go beyond even speciesism, much less genderism, uh, and even go beyond, um, I don't know, anthropomorphic things. What about being taken care of in the future by a, a cloud or a rainbow? I mean, I'm just, again, uh -huh. this is very uh, utopian, but I'm, I'm just uh, sort of trying to think of, of this as, as maybe, maybe it's just a transitory mm -hmm. phenomenon. <clears throat> Yeah, I think instead of a kind of a linear sort of transitory thing, I, th I think these things are all happening simultaneously. So you already do have animal robots. For example, Sony had the dog Ibo that they took off the market a couple of years ago for a number of reasons, and not just related to finance, but also related to the fact that, um, you know, this is very sophisticated in the technology that Ibo uh, users, uh, Ivo, Ivo caretakers, um, were forming fan clubs and they would hack into <laughs> Ivo's uh, CPU basically and transform Ivo into something else and exchange body parts and, you know, it was getting out of hand. Uh, that's one of the reasons I heard uh, given for, so, uh, so there, you know, there was a creative use of these robots, which is, which gets to your point a little bit, but, you know, when you have these sophisticated robots that can access the internet, you're also opening up the possibility of their being hacked into and being reprogrammed and industrial secrets being stolen, this and that and the other thing. So the, the distribution of the more sophisticated robots like Ashimo and, and some of the actors is, is very um, carefully controlled. Wakamaru was put experimentally, um, it was sold, I think it cost about 50000 
to a number of households, but they were under really strict uh, constraints in, uh, you know, not taking it outdoors, for example, um, making sure to, to keep it on a regular maintenance schedule, and not giving uh, interviews about, you know, their relationship with this robot in the household. It's, it's really hard to get uh, to some of this experimental data, which is why you have to do a lot of your research at, um, you know, robo-expos and things like that. But, um, so there are animal robots. One of the most popular animal robot um, is Paro, the harbor seal robot, which is being used um, in uh, senior citizens' homes uh, where it provides companionship. You have this animal. It's very cute. It's got synthetic fur that's antibiotic. Um, it's shielded in a way that doesn't affect pacemakers. Um, it has a pacifier-type you know, plug, so it, it gives it that you know, har baby harbor seal, um, innocuous, benign, cuddly, friendly. And people are really, I mean, I got attached to it. I, you know, uh, you pet it and it kind of makes squeaky sounds, very endearing. It looks at you and its whiskers twitch. Um, and that is uh, being used not only to um, create um, warm uh, personal, interpersonal relations among senior citizens who might be depressed and not talking to each other, but also dealing with autistic children uh, as a way of drawing them out of a certain kind of, you know, um, um, psychological shell. Being used in the States, there's now a distributorship for Pato in Maryland and uh, in Sweden and, um, and certainly in Japan, almost every senior citizen's home now has its stock of Pato. So, you know, these are all simultaneous kinds of uh, creations, but what concerns me is the, that big industry, the government, are behind creating these robots that are imagined to replace um, humans and, um, you know, there's a lot of technology going in to um, simulate robots that can, or create robots that can uh, not only simulate uh, human behavior, but can operate in the same sorts of workplaces that uh, humans can occupy. So it's, it's, they're separate agendas, but they're not contradictory. Yeah, you had your hand up. Sorry, I'm like wrong with it. This is Susan Napier of Tufts, but I can ask people to introduce themselves. Oh, okay. Um, my name is Esra, Esra mm -hmm. Gökteşahin, and I'm uh, studying uh, with Professor Bester at Harvard. Um, so my question is, um, are there any debates about the future generations uh, who are supposedly uh, going to be babysit by robots? And uh, also, is there any um, um, estimated uh, population of robots in contradiction to uh, the um, decreasing population of humans in Japan? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really good question. Um, well, you know what's kind of ironic, and uh, Waseda University um, is sort of spearheading this idea, that there's concern that um, technology has, uh, has made a Japanese less likely to interact with other Japanese. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're not having face-to-face -face relationships. They're uh, texting each other, or they're on cell phone, or, or something. So and it's, it's uh, argued that these robots will actually... Um, recreate, you know, intimate uh, interpersonal relations between humans. Uh, it serves as a sort of a mediator for, um, uh, for human relationships. And I'm still working that one out. I, I, I haven't been able to witness this actually in actual practice, but this is the idea that robots can actually bring uh, people together and to recreate, uh, you know, um, sort of... Uh, ways in which uh, people formed a friendly, harmonious circle around the hearth and, you know, spoke uh, heart to heart. 
but that's how they're being advertised, certainly. And so it's kind of ironic that you know robots are being deployed to correct the um, antisocial tendencies uh, in the wake of you know the the um, overdetermined nature of technology in Japan. How is a question I'd like to actually find find a good answer to, and you know I'm working on that. Yeah, let's see. There is it. That's it. Yes. Oh, I see you're recording it, so you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Alice <laughs> Levitt. I'm from Boston University. Um, so you said that essentially. The roboticists are reinforcing stereotypes. Yes. Um, but I'm wondering why they would possibly choose those traits. Do you think it's something that falls along the lines of comfort with how people portray themselves, um, <clears throat> a la Uncanny Valley, mm -hmm. perhaps? Or do you think there's some other thing behind that? Yeah, I didn't mention the Uncanny Valley in this talk, although I, I talk about it a little bit in some other publications. But it's basically <clears throat> was uh, a, an early idea of, um, of um, not so much gendering, but creating a more embodied, you know, embodiment uh, of uh, a robot. Uh, a, a Japanese roboticist by the name of Mori Masahiro, I think his name is, Created, uh, invented this um, concept called the uncanny valley, and that is uh, if you have a human being, people are really familiar with it, no problem, but let's say uh, you have a human being who has a prosthesis and you shake the hand and you suddenly realize that you know, it's cold, it's clammy, it's not uh, skin and, and, and bones with you know, warming blood flowing through it, and you jump back, it's this kind of creepy, uncanny moments, so something that is really familiar to you and you're comfortable with, suddenly you're plunged into what he called the uncanny valley. It's just bleh. And so zombies have this effect. Zombies exist at the bottom of the uncanny valley. Uh, but fuzzy teddy bears, you know, are, you know, and um, some of these cutesy humanoids like this are quite okay um, because they're small, they're cute, they're gendered. Uh, and they don't wig people out. They don't freak people out. Mm -hmm. So that's the Uncanny Valley, although the Uncanny Valley is, has been you know, critiqued um, in a number of ways and is kind of losing its um, cogency, really, as a, as a uh, criterion for um, robot embodiment. Um, but what was the other part of your question? Why are they creating stereotypes? And oh, well, I, you know, I think these roboticists simply take a lot of things for granted. And in their minds, as far as I can tell, you know, a female is feminine and a male is masculine and it's a pink and blue world and they just sort of replicate that um, in the robots. And they don't really interrogate um, the process of attributing gender, much less all the, the markers that go into constituting a particular gender. Maybe they'll become more conscious of that in the future. It's really, it's quite interesting. Yes. <coughs> need to have like 10 microphones circulating. Thank you very much. <clears throat> uh, my name is Ken Haggerty. I'm an undergraduate here at MIT. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, in your own personal opinion, 
are robots really the solution Japan needs, or is it merely a band-aid for a much deeper wound that needs to be fixed before mm -hmm. you know, robots can be seen as any kind of solution to their problems? Yes, I mean, it has disturbed me that um, what are really social problems that have you know, a lot of historical baggage are treated as technological problems that can be resolved through technological means. And I have a feeling that that notion um, is going to be challenged because the problems are becoming quite dire in Japan. The labor shortage, the, um, the radically dropping um, rate of birth. In fact, it's flat, the rate of reproduction. And you know, the idea that um, many elderly people have expressed that they would rather have a robot take care of them in their old age than you know, a Filipino nurse, for example, is now being... Uh, question because um, it's becoming, you know, robots are really expensive to produce. And it's not that easy to create a sophisticated algorithm that will enable them to be autonomous and safe in uh, a nursing home environment, for example. And Japanese homes are simply not um, configured in a way that um, can be negotiated by robots. A, they can't walk on tatami mats because it, it would destabilize them unless they had wheels. They can't negotiate staircases. And, um, you know, they, they, uh, this is why the, the, the teeny tiny roller ones like Papido are much more popular. They're, they're you know, more mobile and whatnot. But um, it's, I think it's now being voiced, and you see legislation in Japan to bring in Indonesian nurses, for example, or to make um, less restrictive... Um, visas for um, laborers from China. So right now you're kind of like this in the debates, but um, it's still, there's still a concern, and this goes way back to um, arguments about eugenics and notions of pure blood that I've written about elsewhere, that you know, there's, there's this need to maintain, and it goes along with this sort of conservative nationalist mood in Japan, to maintain uh, Technologically, the, um, the integrity, however you might want to interpret that, of the Japanese uh, people. And it's still considered to be problematic to have a huge influx. I mean, 600,000 immigrants a year, that would, that's considered to be destabilizing. So they're pushing robots to take care of as many functions as possible. Why humanoids is really interesting when you can just have a robotic bathtub or a robotic you know, uh, stove or robotic rice cooker. Um, I think a lot of this uh, technology, uh, and I, it's hard to talk about openly in Japan because it's um, a bit taboo, but a lot of this technology is going into the same, in going in the same direction as it is in the United States, and that is uh, the military, uh, which is a much more lucrative market. Japanese still can't assemble robotic weapons, for example, um, as whole units but they can assemble parts and have them assembled someplace else. And that's a, kind of a secret agenda of um, why so many large corporations are involved in creating these uh, very sophisticated humanoid robots. But they, the Japanese are brilliant because they've created of the public a proving ground for humanoid robots in the form of amusement, entertainment, you know, surveillance. And they can, they can gather all the data they need from observing the interface of humans and robots at these expositions and other places and feed that in you know, to other programs. Whereas in the States, it all starts in the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the robot labs that are supported by DARPA and the DOD, and um, only later do some of the fruits of that research reach the general public. Yes? 
Hi, um, my name is Elena Glassman. I'm a graduate student in the Robot Locomotion Group here at CSAIL. Oh. So I belong to one of the DARPA-funded labs, that, and we're working. Well, on... So you can say that openly. You think you can say that in Japan? <laughs> we're working right. on the robots that can, you know, navigate through a, a home, yeah. um, a nursing home. But uh, it's going to be a while before that happens. Yeah. I'm interested um, in whether you got to talk to any female roboticists in Japan, and how how did if you did, um, did that affect how they gendered their humanoids? That's a really good question. And I, I, I think I mentioned, but 99.9% .9 of roboticists in Japan are male. And um, I was at one, I, I asked every, everywhere I go, I said, well, aren't there any females in your lab? You know, I even asked here at the personal robotics lab. And you're lucky to have Cynthia um, Brazil, actually, who's one of the few you know, female roboticists of her caliber. I mean, she's known all over the world. Um, the only female roboticists, uh, roboticist I met at, I think it was the Keio University lab, maybe, was an exchange student from China. And the Chinese have a huge um, humanoid uh, robotics um, industry, as do the Korea, South Koreans. <coughs> huge. Um, now, um, an, another roboticist who is invested in making these human-like robots, they're called face robots as well, the androids and the gynoids, he has females working in his lab as um, cosmetic assistants, and they're the ones who do the hairstyle and the makeup and all that. But they're, they just follow orders. They're not actually saying, you know, this is nuts. You know, you're reproducing a gender stereotype that is keeping me in this position. <laughs> you know, I really want to be a doctor. So... <laughs> So, good question, though, and I, I, I wish you all the success in the world. I mean, it's really... <laughs> yes. Oh, one, oh, let's go to this side now. I haven't, gone to the, I haven't gone to the left yet. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. Hi. Um, my name is Sarah Miles. I'm an undergraduate here at MIT. Um, uh -huh. You mentioned the projection that by 2016 there'll be one robot for every home yeah. in Japan. I'm wondering what the current state of that, the mm -hmm. extent to which robots have infiltrated general society, and connected to that, if you know what the general perception of the Japanese people mm -hmm. is of robots, if there is a general perception. I think the general perception is a very favorable one. And, you know, there's a lot of market survey research done. You get you know, uh, special spots on new developments in robotics almost every night on the TV in Japan. Uh, lots of, like, Discovery Channel types of programs on robots. Um, you cannot escape robots. You know, they do the advertisements. Um, uh, Ashimo is the mascot for the Honda Motor Company, uh, basically. So uh, robots are Japan, and, in fact, it is a, you know, a very powerful symbol of, um, you know, a postmodern... Uh, Japan that is uh, really um, leading the world in the development of this remarkable technology that has generated a lot of spin-off industries. And it's considered the industry that is, or the, the field of industry, the constellation of industries, that's really going to rescue Japan from a, con from a recession. Because, you know, the robots have to have a special kind of shoe. So there are links with a Mizuno, uh, a sports shoe company, for example, to create robot shoes. And the synthetic skins have generated a whole nano uh, technology and uh, you know new skin-like fibers. It's phenomenal, really. Um, so on every level, there's a wide acceptance and a wide appreciation. Um, in terms of how many are in the home, 
Papiro has certainly sold in large numbers. A lot of these companies are not releasing these kinds of figures. It's really hard to come by some of this uh, hard data, actually. IBO sold millions of units, uh, basically. So we know that there's, you know, uh, an eager uh, consuming public out there. Um, what was the other part of your question? The, okay, good. <laughs> I'm of that age, you know, and I can't remember anything that I heard 10 minutes ago. Hi, um, I'm Nick Siever, and I'm a yeah. grad student in comparative media studies. And I have a question about something you mentioned about um, the replie robots, about the male uh, android being a uh, double for the yeah. for the male and the female being um, replacement, being a replacement. Yeah, and I was curious about how that plays out, given that it seems like those specific robots yes. can only really move their arms and make facial expressions. <clears throat> Is this? Are you reading this in you know what they say about the robots, or in some other mm -hmm. source? It's definitely what they say about the robot. I mean, Ishiguro designed his robot specifically to be a kind of an avatar. I mean, he believes that that robot uh, can be more successful at interacting with people than teleconferencing, for example. It, it can convey more authority, and it can generate the illusion of a real human being there, which would facilitate a different kind of discussion than a television screen would. At least that's his rationale. So, and he has labeled this robot with his own initials, you know, and it's Geminoid. I mean, give me a break. It's overdetermined. As opposed to Actroid Replique, you know. And this idea that already, you know, there, he's not calling this Geminoid as somebody, something that um, can do janitorial work or, you know, drive a taxi or something like that. It's, it's going to be his double. It, it um, distributes his personhood. It magnifies his presence. Um, but these replicas are, are already imagined as replacing, you know, human receptionists, for example, um, in doing initial interviews with patients at hospitals. So they are designed to replace um, human females, it's, and who should be reproducing, right? Um, what's interesting is that many of you who've been to Japan know that there's a uh, kind of conventional uh, gender role known as elevator girl. And you find these women outside of the elevators and department stores who are robotic. They're like, bow like this, and you know, you get into the elevator. And I asked one roboticist, I said, perfect, you can have these, you know, actroid replie do these stupid jobs. I said, no, 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 no. We need real humans to, you know, <laughs> because the cust customers would hate it if a robot greeted them. It has to be a real human acting like a robot. <laughs> so I thought, okay. <laughs> But you can have a robot take care of kids, take care of the elderly, um, you know, serve as a receptionist. It's a really, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Um, I was wondering if there's any pushback from, let's say, the Japanese psychological world. Uh -huh. And this, of course, is a question that's close to one that was asked before about whether or not being raised by a robot is perhaps good for children or whether this is just a kind of unquestioned, mm -hmm. uh, you know, build it and they will come and don't ask a question about it. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. I'm not familiar, at least, with a, a debate. A protest movement, a debate? A uh, nobody's marching on <laughs> down, down Ginza, you know, um, protesting robots. Um, you know, people have described the, the, the Japanese school system as generating, you know, these... And, and uh, Corky White has written extensively of this. 
But, um, you know, this notion of um, rote memorization or um, learning certain uh, quantifiable skills, uh, that's changing, obviously, a bit. But So I'm not sure, you know, the robot simply helps. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a mini cram school, basically. So it, it can go over, you know, these kinds of lessons. And well, but a it's, robot mm-hmm. babysitter with mm-hmm. a child is actually putting a robot in a home with a child and seeing it as a babysitter is actually quite a different function yes. than learning lessons. But there are no robots yet that can actually hold a child and nurse at the same time and then give another one a geometry lesson. That is way too sophisticated for the, even the sophisticated technology now available. So you have the little puppet robot that wheels around and can play uh, you know, mind teaser games, uh, can survey you know, the household, let's say, you know, Hanako's not playing the piano, so the mother can tune in on her cell phone if she's shopping or working and say to Papiro, can you check to see if Hanako's doing her music lesson? The robot, you know, beams an image of Hanako reading, you know, uh, comic books. And the mother can then say through the robot, to, you know, tell the, the kid to get back to the piano lessons, that kind of thing. And that's, I think it's considered a, a good thing for the most part. Um, if there's any complaint, it's from people who are part of a, a kind of a subculture that is promoting the slow life in Japan. And they're saying, you know, we become overly dependent on technology. And, um, you know, this Innovation 25 is a bizarre sort of, it's like bad science fiction. You know, it's dated. Um, so there, there is that level, but it's really a minority. I think most people recognize the roboticization of society and their homes as offering convenience, as offering security, and as offering safety. And these are being, you know, um, ballyhooed as desirable um, benefits of roboticization. Is there any discussion of the pornographic... Um, oh, the sex robots? Well, but more than just, uh, uh-huh. I mean, of, the, of this whole field kind of having a... Uh, quasi-pornographic... Well, you know, the sex robots do have a kind of a life of their own, and I didn't go, go into that. There has been a lot done on doll love. Uh, a woman in New York, Elena Dorfman, wrote a wonderful book um, of males who have relationships with dolls, and I think there's a, a movie, actually a feature film on this as well. And in Japan, actually, Kaori and others like her are thought to be really um, a way of actually... Um, preventing or, or at least reducing the sex trafficking of women from uh, East, Eastern European uh, countries and also um, uh, Southeast Asian countries and reducing the rate of STDs, you know, because you can't contract, uh, you know, a venereal disease from a robot. So it's really quite interesting. But uh, Well, it's, so far it seems that the benefits outweigh uh, my concern is with the, the surveillance and with ways in which people have to adapt themselves to uh, a um, cultural modes that accommodate robots. So it's the people who are going to have to change, basically. Oh, yeah, Ted, wow. <clears throat> I love Q&As, by the way, and I, um, so I'm really happy to have all these questions. Hi, I'm Ted Bester from Harvard, and I study humans, actually. Um, and fish, but this, and but this fish. Is, this, this is very fascinating. Thank you. Um, you, you just alluded uh, to safety. Yeah. Um, and you spoke earlier, I don't remember which robot it mm-hmm. was, but the one that was cutting, with cutting off kids' yeah. fingers. Um, well, it didn't actually do that, but they, they didn't oh, want that to happen. Well, yeah. But it, it raises a question uh, in my mind of um, 
given given the way in which Japanese consumer society has reacted in the past 10 years or so to a variety of perceived safety issues, including uh, tainted milk, oh um, yeah, absolutely, you know all kinds yeah. of all kinds of industrial products that have mm -hmm. been found to cause harm to the mm -hmm. body politic, um, I can just sort of anticipate that sooner or later there's going to be some scandal involving a particular kind of robot that is mm -hmm. found, not not the science fiction robot runs amok kind yeah. of thing, but just um, there there will be problems that uh, you know grandmothers will be drowned in bathtubs because the <laughs> algorithm didn't didn't include you know checking the right. checking the the outflow of the drain or something like that. Uh, I mean there just would seem uh -huh. to be bound to be problems along the way. And again, given the the kind of, one might almost say in some cases, hyper-reaction of Japanese consumers to mm -hmm. perceived harms. Mm -hmm. it, I wonder if any of your roboticists have sort of speculated on the, on what if something goes terribly wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I do ask them uh, about this because, you know, the security and safety issues are also wrapped up in surveillance. And you know, uh, they, you know, for A, the absence of a foreigner who might be problematic and, you know, how the governor of Tokyo is sort of drumming up um, xenophobic ideas of dangerous foreigners who have criminal DNA and all this sort of stuff. Um, but um, the, the Waseda University, which has really um, taken the lead in, in trying to educate the public about the desirability of a roboticized society and of, of cohabiting with robots, um, in one of their booklets um, says that, well, you know, there is this problem that because the robot can access the Internet, it can be hacked into. So all robots, you know, who, and it's kind of like a robot constitution, who, uh, who interface with humans, who interact with humans, share an environment with humans, have to have, you know, an annual or a biannual health checkup. And um, this, you know, they would have to be taken to some station or you have, just like you have your, you know, your, your copier machine fixed, you know, every once in a while in the department. Clearly, it would be another form of employment for somebody to come and make sure that, you know, your robot um, doesn't carry any viruses and has a clean bill of health. And in fact, <clears throat> the one um, robot laboratory I work at uh, in, is even talking uh, in terms of uh, a robot qualifying for citizenship if it gets a clean bill, bill of health. Shiminken, citizenship. <laughs> so it's really kind of interesting given that, uh, you know, resident Koreans in Japan were stripped of their citizenship after the war. Now, even before they even debate restoring uh, certain human rights in Japan, are already thinking of citizenship for robots. <laughs> Yes, they, yeah, but, you know, that's, you know, that doesn't pertain. They're actually, as a very, roboethics is a, a newly emergent field that actually emerged in Italy. And the Japan, and the Koreans are more invested in roboethics than the Japanese. The Japanese uh, are debating how far they have to go before, you know, certain guidelines are established. It's, it's quite interesting. But the first robot death was actually the result of an industrial robot crushing a, a human worker in an auto company. He forgot to turn it off, and he was shoved into the gears or something like that. So. Yeah,
<laughs> so I'm Flourish yeah. Clink, and I'm a CMS grad student, and I feel like this has been sort of an elephant in the room, um, so I'm just going to ask oh, it. Is anybody <laughs> not worried that, that, are people not worried that these robots are going to devalue women? Because it really seems like that's... Mm -hmm. been an undertone to your whole presentation mm -hmm. and it's been weirding me out to have all these questions yeah. and have it never be addressed. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm very concerned about it. Um, I don't know what to say except it seems to be overdetermined that um, you know, these robots are imagined to, well actually uh, a couple of roboticists will say, well no, actually we're valorizing and showing women respect because we're allowing biology to be become destiny again. And they can fulfill, you know, the functions, their true functions of giving birth to, yeah, and reproducing. Exactly, exactly. On the other hand, they realize that now that, you know, since 1945, Japan has been a sovereign nation and women are acting on their right not to reproduce, which has created this um, so-called crisis, the Japanese are also working on artificial uteruses, which would bypass completely, you know, the, the self-determination <laughs> arguments of women, yeah. Now, whether or not these artificial uteruses would free up women to become, you know, CEOs and, you know, roboticists in their own right is another question. But, you know, I interviewed a cabinet minister in charge of um, technology and whose team brought out Innovation 25, and I was shocked by his retrograde ideas about um, men and women and, and uh, gender roles. I mean, it was, it was disturbing. I'm only going to choose women from now on. So. <laughs> Hi. Uh, my name is Kathleen McKenzie, and um, I'm from the public. Um, author, Sci-fi author Bruce Sterling wrote in... I think it was 2002 in Wired magazine that robotics is dead. Uh, how do you respond to that? When was that written? Just uh, I think it was in 2002. Right around there, it was either robotics is dead. Um, I've, <laughs> I don't remember the name of the article, um, but he did his normal mm -hmm. um, speech that mm -hmm. he goes. It is a one-page article. Well, there was, yeah, there was a lot of sentiment at that time, particularly in the United States, actually, because the early artificial intelligence involved only computers, and it only went so far, and it kind of died. And then the Japanese come along with embodied intelligence, which now everybody does, including, you know, the, the, the labs here. And, um, you know, a long time, for a long time, Americans were saying, well, what, you know, who needs a humanoid robot? Why bipedalism? Not realizing that the Japanese are not necessarily thinking of you know, a directly applicable, you know, practical solution to something, but rather are tinkering and generating ideas that could result in, you know, um, sort of new forms of, um, you know, technology. And, um, and I think a lot of these, the, the, you know, the fact that a robot can shake your hand or can crack an egg with, you know, out breaking it and can negotiate, um, the, the world that human beings can negotiate is not necessarily to create a, a valet robot, but to use the, the kind of um, you know, technological data and mathematical data to create a better soldier robot, for example, you know, something like that in, on in the future. 
But robotics aren't dead. I mean, uh, this, I'm sure he has since reframed his critique. <laughs> but even Wired Magazine, I, can, I subscribe to it. It's got articles on robots all the time. And interesting. Yeah, I think people, people were poo-pooing the idea of a humanoid robot for a long time. Um, but now, you know, MIT is also working on humanoid robots. Orange shirt guy? Oh, okay. First, first of all, hello? It doesn't make any noise, yeah. It's recording. Oh, okay. Um, well, well, thanks a lot for speaking when you're sick, first of all. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not. Herculean. Yeah, um, I hate being called sick, but anyway, it's, yeah. I, Harvard, Harvard graduate, MIT affiliate, and I play a character called Giant Robot in a play that Ian Condry wrote. Oh, uh -huh. You can Google that if you want to, or YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. I have, with regard to gender roles, I yes. think that um, like it, our human society seems to, uh, you, can, you can look at it in terms of yin and yang, where there may be a majority of, the, of one sex takes to one particular role and, and the other to another, but within the heart of each one is the opposite. Like, for example, um, my sister was, used to be a steel welder. Um, so you have instances in human culture where the opposite gender will take on uh, the, a role that is traditionally done by a, the, the, the other gender. Mm -hmm. It seems like with the robots, um, the way it's evolving in Japan, it seems like these gender roles are being completely rigid. So I guess I'm wondering, have you seen any examples of like a steel welder robot that embodies a female form or a, like, a, like a hot dude sex bot? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, that's interesting. Um, your, I mean, your question raises a number of issues, but um, I'll just stick with the steel welding robot issue. I showed earlier um, the security robots, and those are gendered male, actually. And it's interesting. Um, when you ask, it's because those professions are, you know, historically uh, associated with maleness. Um, now, that's not to say that historically, and there are lots of recorded accounts of this, there have been females who have passed as men in order to find, you know, certain kinds of employment. Uh, and now more openly in Japan, you know, certainly females can drive trucks and this and that and the other thing. But it's still, it's still interesting that roboticists resort, you know, to that earlier, rigid, more dichotomously constructed model uh, of gender. Uh, and the industrial robots, though, who weld, who weld steel would be absolutely gender neutral. I mean, they'd just be a big arm, basically, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, even in the, the case of the um, Face Institute of Japan, uh, where there's a big project underway by an anthropologist, incidentally, to match faces with professions, not even, you know, and, and, and professions with sexes and genders. So a banker looks a certain way, and a politician looks a certain way, and... You know, this is this notion of the uh, aesthetics of standardization is is just a little bit disturbing, and it's being replicated, obviously, um, by roboticists, particularly those who are creating the you know the actroids. So you haven't seen any examples of uh, um, a, like a female robot undertaking a, a, a traditionally conceived male role? Well, I mean, if you look at Wakamaru, that banana-colored uh, robot. Even though that was conceived of um, as gendered male, named after this 12th century samurai uh, hero, 
Uh, it still is, uh, you know, a child care robot and a valet housekeeping robot. At least that's how it's imagined. So that would seem to meld, you know, certain roles. But that then may get into interesting issues involving class, for example, uh, and housework, um, and age, where you know elderly people fulfill roles that um, have become you know gender neutral uh, because of who is fulfilling them. That's another interesting thing. Oh, really? Oh, rats! You already got to ask one. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Andrea Murray. I'm also from Harvard, work with Ted Bester. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on your notion of the post-human. Uh -huh. um, yeah, particularly when you mentioned that, that, if anything, such as if spectacles can mm -hmm. represent one element of, of the post-human, and then these robots, which um, you know, are, are are these existing on a spectrum, or is there some kind of fundamental rupture at the point where, um, or do you view these robots as an? Ex a similar form of extension mm -hmm. of, of the human apparatus? Uh, um, yeah, well, I'm using post-human in, um, in a way that uh, involves, you know, the use of technology and biotechnologies to enhance the human body. For example, you have in Japan now um, uh, people who are disabled uh, or need assistance walking, being able to put on a, a kind of a belt that helps, you know, propel them forward. Um, so it's kind of cyborgian uh, in a way, but I deliberately did not use cyborg because it brings to mind Donna Haraway. And I have another paper where I talk about Donna Haraway's work where the cyborg is a liberating kind of, um, you know, hybrid, uh, neither male nor female uh, cybernetic entity. But the, that discourse of, um, you know, human-machine hybridity is not particularly liberating in Japan necessarily, except in a strictly functional sense where, you know, you can actually walk better. Um, but it certainly, as I think I've argued, it hasn't released people from the status quo or conventionalized you know, um, gender roles and notions of the relationship of sex, gender, and, and sexuality. <clears throat> um, but um, in post-human also to you direct attention to how dependent we are on technology. And the thing is, the Japanese are just taking it um, another step and, and, and turning the household also into an environment uh, defined by uh, and shaped by a robot um, companion, a robot family member. So I think what you're going to see is um, human relationships uh, mediated by uh, robots and also um, human environmental behavior being shaped you know, by the needs of a robot who demands um, predictability and standardized behavior. There was a funny story about Wakamaru, <clears throat> the uh, caretaker robot, the banana-colored robot, uh, and it is able to memorize um, something like uh, 80 names, and it can also memorize your schedule. It has this algorithm that allows it to, to, um, to digest information from its environment so that robot becomes specially tuned uh, to your home. Um, and so let's say Mr. Tanaka uh, goes to work at 6 in the morning and comes back at you know, um, 6 in the evening. He's an unusual salaryman. They usually stay out really late. Okay, so the robot gets used and, and it knows that Tanaka is going to be home at 6, gets the bath ready at 7, um, and then one day Tanaka doesn't come home and it's like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. So the robot auto-dials the, you know, the equivalent of 911 
And <laughs> this is not the robot, this is the security and safety part. And, you know, suddenly there's a bolo out for Mr. Tanaka. You know, where is he? He didn't come home. So, you know, you've, you've got, you know, and, and this is a, a funny story that roboticists tell, but already, the, you know, you're thinking, gee, should I, I need to inform Wakamaru that my schedule is going to vary from its usual, you know, predict predictability. So there are new kinds of constraints are being placed on humans, actually. <clears throat> I don't know if that answers your question, but it, yeah. Yeah, so there's a more questions <clears throat> that you should probably uh, wind up. If you have more questions, you can ask them to come up. Again, we'll make yourself double for a few more minutes here. Sure. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking Jennifer. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh,